Chapter 23 of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simona Russo. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter 23 A Throned Barbarian. The dawn of the 18th century saw the thrones of France and Russia occupied by two of the most remarkable sovereigns who ever wore a crown, Louis XIV, the Sun King, whose splendors dazzled Europe and whose power held it in awe, and Peter I of Russia, whose destructive sword swept Europe from Sweden to the Dardanelles and whose clever brain laid sure the foundation of his country's greatness each of these royal rivals dwarfed all other fellow monarchs as the sun pales the stars and yet it would scarcely have been possible to find two men more widely different in all save their passion for power and their love of women which alone they had in common of the two peter is unquestionably to day the more arresting dominating figure although nearly two centuries have gone since he made his exit from the world we can still picture him in his pride towering a head higher than the tallest of his courtiers swart of face as if he had been born in africa with his black close curling hair his bold imperious eyes his powerful well-knit frame the muscles and stature of a goliath a kingly figure with majesty in every movement we see him too wilfully discarding the kingliness with which nature had so liberally dowered him now receiving ambassadors in a short dressing gown below which his bare legs were exposed a thick nightcap lined with linen on his head his stockings dropped down over his slippers now walking through the copenhagen streets grotesque in a green cap a brown overcoat with horn buttons worsted stockings full of darns and dirty cobbled shoes and again carousing red of face and loud of voice with his meanest subjects in some low tavern as the mood seizes him he plays the role of fireman for hours together goes carol singing in his ledge and reaps his harvest of coppers from the houses of his subjects rides a hobby horse at a village fair and shrieks with laughter until he falls off or plies saw and plane in a shipbuilding yard sharing the meals and drinking bouts of his fellow workmen the french ambassador count Predon, wrote of him in seventeen twenty five it is utterly impossible at the present moment to approach the tsar on serious subjects he is altogether given up to his amusements which consist in going every day to the principal houses in the town with a suit of two hundred persons musicians and so forth who sing songs on every sort of subject and amuse themselves by eating and drinking at the expense of the persons they visit he never passed a single day without being the worse for drink baron polnitz tells us and his drinking companions were usually chosen from the most degraded of his subjects of both sexes with whom he consorted on the most familiar terms when his muddled brain occasionally awoke to the knowledge that he was a king he would bully and hector his boon comrades like any drunken trooper 
on one occasion when a young jewess refused to drain a goblet of neat brandy which he thrust into her hand he promptly administered two resounding boxes on her ears shouting vile hebrew spawn i'll teach thee to obey there was in him too a vein of savage cruelty which took remarkable forms a favourite pastime was to visit the torture chamber and gloat over the sufferings of the victims of the knout and the strapado or to attend and frequently to officiate at public executions once we are told at a banquet he amused himself by decapitating twenty streltsi emptying as many glasses of brandy between successive strokes and challenging the prussian envoy to repeat the feat mad there can be little doubt that peter had madness in his veins he was a degenerate and an epileptic subject to brainstorms which terrified all who witnessed them a sort of convulsion seized him which often for hours threw him into a most distressing condition his body was violently contorted his face distorted into horrible grimaces and he was further subject to paroxysms of rage during which it was almost certain death to approach him even in his saner moods as Valishevsky tells us, he joined to the roughness of a Russian barin all the coarseness of a Dutch sailor. Such in brief suggestion was Peter I of Russia, half savage, half sovereign, the strangest jumble of contradictions who has ever worn the imperial purple, a huge mastodon whose moral perceptions were all colossal and monstrous it was perhaps inevitable that a man so primitive so little removed from the animal should find his chief pleasures in law pursuits and companionships during his historic visit to london after a hard day's work with ads and soul in the shipbuilding yard the tsar would adjourn with his fellow workmen to a public house in great tower street and smoke and drink ale and brandy almost enough to float the vessel he had been helping to construct and in his own kingdom the favourite companion of his debauches were common soldiers and servants he chose his friends among the common herd looked after his household like any shopkeeper thrashed his wife like a peasant and sought his pleasure where the lower populace generally finds it his female companions were chosen rather for their coarseness than their charms and pleased him most when they were drunk it was thus fitting that he should make an empress of a scholarly maid who as we have seen in an earlier chapter had no vestige of beauty to commend her to his favour and whose chief attractions in his eyes were that she had a coarse tongue and was a first-rate topper it was thus a strange and unhappy caprice of fate that united peter while still a youth to his first empress the refined and sensitive eudoxia a woman as remote from her husband as the stars never was there a more incongruous bride than this delicately nurtured girl provided by the empress natalie for her coarse-grained son from the hour at which they stood together at the altar the union was doomed to tragic failure before the honeymoon waned peter had terrified his bride by his brutality and disgusted her by the open attentions he paid to his favourites of the hour the daughters of botticher the goldsmith and mons the wine merchant 
For five years husband and wife saw little of each other, and when in 1694 Natalie's death removed the one influence which gave the union at least the outward form of substance, Peter lost no time in exhibiting his true colours. He dismissed all Eudoxia's relatives from the court, and sent her father into exile. One brother he caused to be whipped in public, Another was put to the torture which had horrible climax when Peter himself saturated his victim's clothes with spirits of wine and then set them on fire. For Eudoxia a different fate was reserved. Not only had he long grown weary of her insipid beauty and of her refinement and gentleness, which were a constant mute reproach to his own low tastes and hectoring manners, he had grown to hate the very sight of her, and determined that she should no longer stand between him and the unbridled indulgence of his pleasures. During his visit to England he never once wrote to her, and on his return to Moscow his first words were a brutal announcement of his intention to be rid of her. In vain she pleaded and wept, to her tearful inquiries, What have I done to offend you? What fault have you to find with me? He turned a deaf ear. I never want to see you again, were his last inexorable words. A few days later, a hackney coach drove up to the palace doors. The unhappy Tsarina was bundled unceremoniously into it, and she was carried away to the nunnery of the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, whose doors were closed on her for a score of years. Pitiful years they were for the young empress, consigned by her husband to a life that was worse than death, robbed of her rank, her splendours and luxuries, her very name, she was now only Helen, the nun, faring worse than the meanest of her sister nuns. For while they at least had plenty to eat, the Tsarina seems many a time to have known the pangs of hunger. The letters she wrote to one of her brothers are pathetic evidence of the straits to which she was reduced. For pity's sake, she wrote, give me food and drink, give clothes to the beggar, there is nothing here. I do not need a great deal, still I must eat. It is not to be wondered at that in her misery she should turn anywhere for succour and sympathy, and both came to her at last in the guise of Major Glebov, an officer in the district whose heart was touched by the sadness of her fate. He sent her food and wine to restore her strength, and warm first to protect her from the iciness of her cell. In response to her letters of thanks, he visited her again and again, bringing sunshine into her darkened life with his presence, and soothing her with words of sympathy and encouragement, until gratitude to the good Samaritan grew into love for the man. When she learned that the man who had so befriended her was himself poor, actually in money difficulties, she insisted on giving him every rouble she could wring by any abject appeal out of her friends and relatives. She became his very slave, groveling at his feet. Where thy heart is, dearest one, she wrote to him, there is mine also. Where thy tongue is, there is my head. Thy will is also mine. She loved him with a passion which broke down all barriers of modesty and prudence, reckless of the fact that he had a wife and she had a husband. When Major Glebov's visits and letters grew more and more infrequent, she suffered tortures of anxiety and despair. 
my light, my soul, my joy, she wrote in one distracted letter, has the cruel hour of separation come already? Oh, my light, how can I live apart from thee? How can I endure existence? Rather would I see my soul parted from my body. God alone knows how dear thou art to me. Why do I love thee so much, my adored one, that without thee life is so worthless? Why art thou angry with me? Why, my Batyushka, dost thou not come to see me? Have pity on me, O my Lord, and come to see me to-morrow. O my world, my dearest and best, answer me. Do not let me die of grief. Thus one distracted, incoherent letter followed another, heart-breaking in their grief, pitiful in their appeal. Come to me, she cried, without thee I shall die. Why dost thou cause me such anguish? Have I been guilty without knowing it? Better far to have struck me, to have punished me in any way, for this fault I have innocently committed. And again, why am I not dead? Oh, that thou hadst buried me with thy own hands. Forgive me, O oh my soul, do not let me die. Send me but a crust of bread thou hast beaten with thy teeth, or the waistcoat thou hast often worn, that I may have something to bring thee near to me. What answers, if any, the major's vouchsafed to these pathetic letters, we know not. The probability is that they received no answer, that the good Samaritan had either wearied off or grown alarmed at a passion which he could not return, and which was fraught with danger. It was accident only that revealed to the world the story of this strange and tragic infatuation. When the Tsarevich Alexis was brought to trial in 1718 on a charge of conspiracy against his father, Peter, suspecting that Eudoxia had had a hand in the rebellion, ordered a descent on the nunnery and an inquiry. Nothing was found to connect her with her son's ill-fated venture, but the inquiry revealed the whole story of her relations with a too-friendly officer. The evidence of the nuns and servants alone, evidence of frequent and long meetings by day and night, of embraces exchanged, was sufficiently conclusive without incriminating letters which were discovered in the major's bureau, labelled letters from the Tsarina, or Eudoxia's confession, which was extorted from her. This was an opportunity of vengeance such as exceeded all the Tsar's hopes. Glebov was arrested and put on his trial. Evidence was forced from the nuns by the lashing of the knout, so severe that some of them died under it. Glebov subjected to such frightful tortures that in his agony he confessed much more than the truth, was sentenced to death by impalement. In order to prolong his suffering to the last possible moment, he was warmly wrapped in furs to protect him from the bitter cold, and for twenty-eight hours he suffered indescribable agony until at last death came to his release. As for Eudoxia, her punishment was a public flogging and consignment to a nunnery still more isolated and miserable than that in which she had dragged out twenty years of her broken life. Here she remained for seven years, until on the Tsar's death an even worse fate befell her. She was then, by Catherine's orders, taken from the convent and flung into the most loathsome rat-infested dungeon of the fortress of Schlussenberg, where she remained for two years of unspeakable horror. Then at last, after nearly thirty years of life that was worse than death, the sun shone again for her. 
one day her dungeon door flew open and to the bowing of obsequious courtiers the prisoner was conducted to a sumptuous apartment the walls were hung with splendid stuffs the table was covered with gold plate ten thousand roubles awaited her in a casket courtiers stood in her antechamber carriages and horses were at her orders catherine the scholarly empress was dead eudoxia's grandson peter the second now wore the crown of russia and eudoxia found herself transported as by the touch of a magic wand from her loathsome prison cell to the old-time splendors of palaces the greatest lady in old russia to whom princesses ambassadors and courtiers were all proud to pay respectful homage but the transformation had come too late her life was crushed beyond restoration and after a few months of her new glory she was glad to find an asylum once more within convent walls until death the great healer of broken hearts took her to where beyond these voices there is peace while eudoxia was eating her heart out in her convent cell her husband was finding ample compensation for her absence in bacchanalian orgies and the company of his galaxies of favourites from tradesmen daughters to servant-maids of buxom charms such as the livonian peasant girl in whom he found his second empress of the almost countless women who thus fell under his baneful influence one stands out from the rest by reason of the tragedy which surrounds her memory mary hamilton was no low-born maid such as peter especially chose to honour with his intentions she had in her veins the blood of the ducal hamiltons of scotland and of many a noble family of russia from which her more immediate ancestors had taken their wives and it was an ill fate that took her when little more than a child to the most debased court of europe to play the part of a maid of honour and thus to cross the path of the most unprincipled lover in europe peter's infatuation for the pretty young scotswoman however was but short-lived she had none of the vulgar attractions that could win him to any kind of constancy and he quickly abandoned her for the more agreeable company of his dinschicks leaving her to find consolation in the affection of more courtly if less exalted lovers notably the young count orloff who proved as faithless as his master such was mary's infatuation for the worthless count that under his influence she stooped to various kinds of crime from stealing the tsarina's jewels to fill her lover's purse to infanticide the climax came when an important document was missing from the tsar's cabinet suspicion pointed to orloff as a thief he was arrested and when brought into peter's presence not only confessed to the thefts and to his share in making away with the undesirable infants but betrayed the partner of his guilt there was short shrift for poor mary hamilton when she was put on her trial on these grave charges she made full confession of her crimes but no torture could wring from her the name of the man for love of whom she had committed them and of whose treachery to her she was ignorant she was sentenced to death and one march day in the year seventeen nineteen she was led to the scaffold in a white silk gown trimmed with black ribbons then followed one of the grimmest scenes recorded in history peter the man who had been the first to betray her and who had refused her pardon even when her cause was pleaded by his wife 
was a keenly interested spectator of her execution at the foot of the scaffold he embraced her and exhorted her to pray before stepping aside to give place to the headsman when the axe had done its deadly work he again stepped forward picked up the lifeless and still beautiful head which had rolled into the mud and calmly proceeded to give a lecture on anatomy to the assembled crowd drawing attention to the number and nature of the organs severed by the axe his lecture concluded he kissed the pale dead lips crossed himself and walked away with a smile of satisfaction on his face End of chapter 23